okay, I've got probably the most theologically significant question we're going to deal with today. What do you think the hamster's name is? Fred? Um, I've heard, so online, some people were guessing Huey or Hammy. Um, what? Calvin. Calvin. Oh, I like that. I actually don't know the hamster's name. So, but I just, I'm just, you know, taking a poll. So, um, I love that image of the hamster chasing after the carrot. Well, here we are in our series called Chasing Carrots. And basically, we're talking about the futile things, those empty things that we chase after in life. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you felt like that hamster on the wheel running after something over and over and over again and you're just trying so hard and it's out of reach. Now, I would like to clarify, we are not anti-vegetable at Dallas Church. So please, you know, go home, eat your veggies. Some of you can make amazing vegetarian dishes that, you know, I've, I can't do that. I prefer to just put a steak on the grill. But, but some of you, you can do some really cool things with veggies. But really, vegetables aren't the problem, right? Carrots aren't the problem. Actually, the problem is what the Bible would call idols. And, and ultimately, when we're talking about carrots, we're using that word and that language to talk about idols. And over and over again in the Bible, an idol is something that humans will put their hope in or something that we will go to to meet a need that only God could meet. And to some extent, when we chase after those things, sometimes we even get those things and we realize that they're empty. Like imagine if that hamster were to get off the wheel to grab the carrot. I don't even think that's a real carrot, guys. Like the size? I think it's plastic. And so he gets off the wheel and he gets the carrot. I mean, even if it was a real carrot, he's going to be hungry in just a few more like hours or minutes. I actually have no idea about hamsters' metabolisms. But the thing is, when we chase after idols, we come up empty. And we have all been disappointed as we have gone after things. We have put our hope in things that let us down. One of my friends showed up to a Super Bowl party one time. He was the only one wearing a Denver Broncos jersey for Super Bowl 48. And there was another, about a half dozen, a dozen and a half of us that were Seahawks fans. Now, if you remember the score, at the end of Super Bowl 48, the Seahawks had 43 points. And the Denver Broncos had eight. And I just kind of watched my friend, like, kind of die inside a little bit as he was sitting there just over and over again. And eventually, even the Seahawks fans were like, okay, you know, I'm going to go do some homework now because we have a final tomorrow and we know how this is going to end. He was disappointed. I have been disappointed. In high school, one of the things my friends and I would do is we would go to the midnight showings of movies because we thought, who needs sleep? And if movies are released on Friday, the movie theater started saying, well, we'll do a 12.01 showing. And there may or may not have been some coordinated outfits and maybe some costumes involved. And so we, we would go to these movies, and you all know I'm a nerd. This isn't news. Nobody's surprised. But we would go to these movies, and I was a huge fan of the books and the source material, and some of them were just awful. 
And here I am at 3 a.m. I've like sacrificed a night of sleep and feeling good the next day. And now I'm like embarrassed and I want to turn the popcorn bowl over on itself and then put that on my head as I walk out because I'm just embarrassed about how this whole thing went down. In the year 2020, there was a video game that was released that was so bad, they had been working on it for over five years, and it was so bad that they had to give a refund to everybody who bought the game because they were like, yeah, this just, it's a lousy game, and we're just gonna give you the money back. Now, maybe those are small things. Maybe for you, it was some bigger things that we went after. Maybe it was, you know, the, the car that you always wanted. I'm gonna get my dream car, and then you're driving it a little while later, and the check engine light comes on, you're like, how could you do this to me? You've betrayed me. Maybe it was a relationship that, that you jumped in and you thought, no, this person is the one. I'm gonna have all my needs met. We're gonna live happily ever after like Walt Disney has told me for years and years is gonna happen. And it didn't go that way. Maybe a career or a job position, if I could just get this, all my problems would be fixed. And those are carrots. Those are idols. Those are things that we go after. And we have all put our hope in things that have let us down. In the book of Exodus, when the nation of Israel was brought out of slavery in Egypt, and, and you've seen the story, maybe you've read it in the Bible or watched the DreamWorks version or the Charlton Heston version or whatever, but when Israel was saved out of that situation, through miraculous means, they're at Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up to talk to God, and they've just seen these amazing things. And what do they do? They build a golden calf, and then the high priest Aaron says, look, Israel, this is your God who delivered you. This is the thing that you can put your hope in. And I think that story is included because just so quickly, that's what our hearts do. We latch on to things. We go after things. We chase after things. In Exodus, the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, he says, have no other gods before me. In the book of Isaiah, he's talking about idols and how ironic it is. In Isaiah chapter 44, it's almost like he's telling a joke. He says, when you go after idols, it's like you go and grab the tree and you bring the tree home and you cut it in half and you have to divide it and decide, okay, this half goes in the fireplace and this half we're going to make into an idol that we're going to worship. Now, how silly is that? It's just, it's just a dead hunk of wood. And before we're going to turn up our noses at them and go, okay, you people in 700 BC, and engage in what C.S. Lewis would call chronological snobbery, where we say, look at how silly those people are to make something that they would put their hope in. I want to turn that back on us and think about when do we put our hope, our self-assurance, our self-confidence, how we feel about the world, how often is that determined by a created thing? Now, it's probably not a hunk of wood. Maybe it's a number on a digital screen. Whether that's a bank account or a retirement account or, you know, on your social media, the number of likes. How often is it the things with wheels in our driveway 
that we trust in or hold on to, or even superficial things that we have no control over, like our health or our activities or any number of things that we chase after. Paul said it this way in Romans. He says that idolatry is when we trade the creator God for something that has been created. And so that's why I love this series that we've been diving into to talk about some of those idols that that hit us as 21st century Americans. Because I know that most of us are not going to have a struggle of going up to the high place of Baal with a golden calf after church. Like that's not the, the struggle that crosses my desk as a pastor today. But there are so many heart issues and things that we go after. So let's pray and dig into God's word today. Father God, I pray that you would speak through me, you would speak through your word, that you would show us that our hope is ultimately in you and that it's in you that we can trust. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, today's carrot we're going to talk about is comfort. Comfort. So I just need all of you to go home and get rid of all the couches and lazy boys and comfy blankets. That's, that's just the application. No, that's not actually the application. But it's interesting that comfort becomes so important to us in the 21st century. Comfort becomes so important to us. And that can mean a couple different things. Maybe that means security. And the fact that you know, maybe you are comfortable when you feel secure in your world, when you know where you know, the next meal is coming from, that all the bills are paid, that everything is in a row and in order like you want it to be. Maybe comfort means apathy where there are uncomfortable conversations we need to have, relationships that we need to pursue, and and time-consuming things that we need to do. But what we want to do is we just got off a really tough shift, and we just kind of want to sit down at the end of a workday and unplug. So maybe comfort looks like that for us. Maybe comfort looks like control. And if I can just control everything, then I'm going to feel comfortable. True confessions. I can't relax in the car when someone else is driving. If we're going on a road trip, I do not sleep in the car. And so oftentimes, I'm like, yeah, we'll trade out at some point. You know? We'll trade out at some point. And then we arrive at the destination, and oh, you didn't have to trade out. It's okay. Now, maybe we do that in life to feel comfortable because we need to be in control. Pastor Chris Beal said it this way, We all want a life that is more defined by ease than by hardship. We do want to have ease in our life. And not many of us, even those of us who are like, yeah, I love to be uncomfortable. I want to work out and lift tons tons of weights and run marathons. Even that person, when they have something that goes down outside of their comfort zone, they start to have a meltdown inside. Because we all have it. We all have the comfort zone. That's even a phrase that we use to describe our world. The comfort zone, some of us have a little tiny comfort zone. Some of us have a big, huge comfort zone, but we all have it. And it's this line that we draw, this circle that we draw around us and say, I'm okay with these things happening to me, with these things happening in my life. And the instant that I get pulled out of that or something outside of that zone happens, I'm uncomfortable, I don't like it, and I want to just get as quickly as I can back to the comfort zone. Now here's here's just what I think. I don't know 
that you can do the Christian life in the comfort zone. You look at the people in the Bible that God works in their life or the way that he changes them, the way that we grow, I don't know that that happens inside our comfort zone. And so we can't be fighting all the time and trying to claw our way back in there when maybe what God has for us is outside of our comfort zone. That's not a fun place to be. That's not maybe where we, we always want to be. But I think God calls us out of the comfort zone. Now, why do we care so much about comfort? Our culture tries to sell us on a counterfeit comfort. They try to sell us on a carrot, a counterfeit comfort. Over and over again, we're going to see advertisements. You know, the numbers are pretty staggering. The average American sees over 4,000 ads every single day. And the breakdown of advertising is actually really similar to the gospel. Because the way they start it is they say, oh man, do you have a problem? Are you suffering? Do you need a savior from all the stinky bad kitty litter in your house? Like, do you need, well, if you just had this product, if you just had this savior, then you, you wouldn't have that problem. You wouldn't be suffering. If you just did the right thing, you just bought the right thing, and that's a story that we get over and over and over again. And I think that rewires us a little bit. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller said it this way, that, that Western civilization and kind of the American ideology is one of the absolute worst in human history to help people cope with suffering. Because throughout history, there's no sense of, in, in the story that we're told today, that the world is, is empty and, and full of chaos, and either you did something stupid or there's no meaning in your suffering, that story can't get us through the uncomfortable times. That story can't get us through the roughness of life. And stuff is going to happen. There's a TED Talk by Dr. Lucy Hone where she started to list off in, in her TED Talk. Everybody, and I'm not going to ask us to do this, but she said, stand up if you've lost a loved one, if you've gone through a divorce, if you lost a home to foreclosure, if you lived through a catastrophic event, maybe if you lived through a global pandemic. And she was like, everybody stand up. And pretty soon at the end of the talk, everybody is standing. So then why do we think when something bad happens, God, where are you? How could this happen to me? Because we all go through adversity. 1 John says it this way. In 1 John 2, 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, we've got to read this with our brains on, because you're like, wait, John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world. And God tells me to love my neighbor. My neighbor happens to be in the world. So we're not saying that you should, like, you know, put up the walls and just live this ascetic life where there is nothing going on, no joy. Let's just push everything out. But what John is telling these Christians is he says, don't buy in to the story of the world. Don't buy in to the value system of the world around you. Verse 16, it says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God 
abides forever. Now, it's interesting to me that John is going to drop this nugget. He says, do not buy into the story of the world. He, he drops this on these Christians, and in the very next passage, he's going to tell them to avoid the antichrists. And before we get all up in arms and start reading newspaper articles and like, oh man, what's the antichrist doing to the one world government? Look, before we jump into that, let's just think about what the word antichrist means. It means an alternative Christ. It means a, a different and against, a put uh, alongside as in opposition to a Christ, a savior. And when we go after comfort as an alternative savior, it's an empty carrot that we're chasing. Pastor Chris Beal said this about comfort, and this is the one that hit me and I really had to think about. He says, when we chase comfort, we try to create a life where we don't need God. When we chase comfort, when we try to put our little, you know, sand castles or whatever, you know, control we put on our world, we're trying to say, it's okay, God, I don't need you. I've got my life figured out. Almost like that kid, you know, that's transitioning from training wheels and, you know, he's got grandma or grandpa or maybe mom or dad holding the bike and he's like, no, it's okay. I got it. I got it. I got it. Maybe you were that kid and then you let go and kid goes along a little ways, and what happens? Like in the ditch, like that, that's how it goes. But God calls us to a life of faith. Hebrews 11.6, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. If you look at the stories in Hebrews chapter 11, over and over again, Moses, Enoch, Noah, all these guys, God works in their life when they don't necessarily see the other side of it. They don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. They don't see how it's all going to come together. And so maybe as Christians, we can just be more comfortable being in that place. Maybe we can be more comfortable being outside of our comfort zone because there's a God that we can trust. And so let's embrace an authentic comfort. Let's reject the counterfeit. If you've got your Bibles, you can jump in with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians, not 1st. 1 Corinthians gets all the love and everybody's always preaching out of that one. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's start with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now, that's an interesting phrase. I don't know that I think of God very often as the God of comfort. I think of him as the God of creation, the God of salvation. But Paul's going to describe him here as the God of comfort. Verse 4, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you feel all the comfort in that verse? Did you count that? Oh man, I, this, this feels like, you know, I'm saying the word comfort so much, I feel like it's a lazy boy commercial or something, right? Where you're like, oh man, the God of comfort who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those with the comfort that we are comforted. But you know what other word is repeated in that verse? affliction. 
And that's a much less fun word. For some reason, that word doesn't show up in the Lazy Boy commercials. But we receive God's comfort in the middle of our affliction, in the middle of our struggles and our trials. And it's, it's not God's comfort just aloof from that, but we are comforted so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with what we've received from God. And maybe you've seen this true in your life, where it's the parts of your story that if you could rewrite, if God gave you the eraser or the backspace button, you'd be like, yes, that chapter, I'd love to get that out of there. I'd love that that did not happen to me. I'd love that I did not go through that. If I could write my story, I would not have included that. But at the same time, how often are those the things that God uses in us to minister to other people? And to come alongside and say, it's okay. There's a, a famous story about the guy who, a guy who fell in a pit. And he's in the middle of the pit and his friend walks by. And his friend says, oh man, you're in the pit, that's terrible. And his friend jumps down in with him. And he looks at his friend, he says, why didn't you go get a rope or a ladder or something like that? And the friend says, no, it's okay. I've been in this pit before. I know the way out. How often do we get to extend the comfort? We get to come alongside people in the middle of the struggles that we have gone through. Verse 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And we just need to be real for a second that we gather every Sunday to worship a broke, homeless, Nazarene carpenter, who was murdered for not doing anything wrong. And so, do we have a leg to stand on when life doesn't go perfectly for us? And we say, oh man, God, you must not be real. Because we worship a Savior who went through suffering. So let's be real and not expect that God's just going to smooth everything out for us. Verse 6, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. And we've already talked about God's comfort shows up in the middle of the struggle, in the middle of the darkness. Verse 7, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Let's keep going, because Paul's going to get really real about his life here. Verse 8, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Utterly burdened. Now that word is going to mean crushed. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you will be there. Maybe you know someone who's there. Where the weight of life and what is going on, it feels too much. It feels like you're getting crushed. He's, he's just being real honest. Paul is saying, despaired of life itself. That's some pretty strong language. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was not to make us rely on ourselves. And I love this phrase. Notice Paul's already mentioned death like twice at this point. 
And we've already said we worship a Savior who died. But we also worship the God who raises the dead. The God who breathes life. The God who in the middle of the darkness and the struggle, the God who makes dead things live. That's like the ultimate hope. Where the fact that if something goes wrong, that something ends, not just that life is a place where, you know, on Friday when Jesus died, but rather it's also a place of Sunday when he rose again. And maybe there are some things that we've given up on. Maybe there are some things that in the middle of our affliction, we are not holding on to or looking at the light at the end of the tunnel, and we have forgotten that we worship a God who writes not just the middle of the story, but the end of the story. The God who makes dead things live. Verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. Remember, I talked about the nation of Israel. Paul was probably, um, as a boy, had memorized the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I had a hard enough time, you know, as a kid memorizing just those five words. But he had probably memorized the whole content of them. And he's saying, the same God who has been with all of these people before, who has been with me through all of my struggles in life, this is the deliverer. This is the God that we worship and we turn to. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So there's, there's a prayer element to this that I cannot break down for you or give you a nice little table or flow chart that says, here's how prayer works, but I can tell you it does. I've had people praying for me and I felt the, the difference I've seen in different circumstances in my life as things have kind of changed and turned corners because we were praying for each other. So Dallas Church, in the building, online, let's pray for each other. And I want to turn our attention, to kind of wrap everything up, I want to turn our attention to verse 10. He is our deliverer. On him we have set our hope. There's a phrase that has stuck with me. I, I, this story really meant something to me. Coach Jim Lear um, coached an Olympic speed skater named Dan Jansen. And Dan Jansen was really good at the short sprints. And I don't know a ton about Olympic speed skating. I'm not an Olympic speed skater, in case you guessed. But, but what he would do is he was really good at those short sprints. And so one of his first times he gets to go to the Olympics, he's just about to go on his sprint where he has the chance to win the gold. And right before he's gonna go out on the ice, he receives the news that his sister had died of leukemia. And, and he was like, okay, do I go out on the ice? What do I do? Should I just, you know, call it? But it's, it's the Olympics. And so his family and him kind of have this conversation and they say, okay, I think if she, if she had her say, she would want you to go out and do that sprint. So he goes out, he gets on the ice, he goes for the sprint, and he has a nasty fall. He wipes out. And when he goes back to training, he trains for both the sprint and then the longer 1,000, 1,000 meter dash or whatever that is, the 1,000, and his coach 
had him write this in his journal every day with training. He had to write the words, I love the 1,000. And he was like, and it was to rewire his brain because he's like, I hate the 1,000. I like the sprint. I hate the 1,000. I like the sprint. And the coach is like, no, just write this down. I love the 1,000. And did that over and over again. So then the next time he goes to the Olympics and it's time for the sprint. And he goes for the sprint. He trips and he falls. This is like the last time in his career he's going to be able to compete in the Olympics. And the next day, the event is the 1,000. And so he goes up, to, goes up to the starting line. He does the race. And he wins gold in the 1,000. Now, I don't know what your 1,000 is. But that's something I've kind of latched onto. I've been like, man, here's my phrase. I love the 1,000. Well, I want to go a little bit deeper than that. Because that's a little bit, little bit surface, a little bit carrot. I think our phrase should be, God is in the 1,000. God is with us in the struggle that we don't want to do, in the thing that maybe our brain is telling us, I don't like the 1,000, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. God is in the 1,000. And so our encourage, my encouragement to us is just that we would set our hope on him. Almost like if we could pick where our comfort zone exists, because a lot of times our comfort zone, it's set on us. But if we could choose where we put it, we put our comfort zone on God. We say, okay, that's the radius. That's the, that's the origin. And we stick close to him. Then you're always in that comfort zone. Even if we're uncomfortable. Even if we're in the situations that God calls us to. So let us set our hope on him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are our deliverer. You're the one who breathes life into dark situations. God, that you are the one that we can trust in. I pray that we would go from this place with a hope set on you. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.